Hello all you dedicated tea breakers. I am Mike Senior and I am here with composer and musical director John Witten for our first double figure episode, episode 10 of Project Studio Tea Break. We've made it. We have. We've absolutely <laughs> made it. I'm still pleased that my shoe size is still more than the episode number, but it's not going to be long now. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is this European or UK? Because you can you can get yourself a fair bit more time with European. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm, I'm going to do with good old British values. <laughs> is this where we're going to plant our nationalist flag? Is, is on shoe size. <laughs> this is the hill we're going to pick yeah. to die on. It's a special Brexit edition. <laughs> Oh, goodness. I thought this was going to be the one bit of my week I could escape Brexit. But even, <laughs> even our irreverent little podcast is um, is not immune. No, 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 no. No. Uh, yeah, so you've been busy. You've been charging off to pastures new. And- yes, I spent uh, New Year's in in Mexico, which was brilliant. You know, it, it, I, I should have probably thought of a particular funny anecdote about it. But it was... <laughs> I haven't, and it was it was generally wonderful. Heard a huge amount of live music, a lot of mariachi. I'm ah. I'm all about mariachi now. I'm gonna get myself. I wouldn't have had you down as a mariachi person. You know what? I wasn't. I hated it. I hated it. You've been you've been converted. I hated it until impressing a beautiful woman was incumbent on me learning to love it. And then all of a sudden, I kind of, I found the will. Yeah, it's amazing, that. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it odd? Thus human <laughs> progress is born. The funny thing is, though, that to me for the longest time, it just all sounded indiscriminately cheerful. <laughs> okay. Like, like depressingly cheerful. It was so uninteresting to me. Right. But it, I suppose it's like any style. After you listen to it for long enough... You realise there's all sorts of ups and downs in it. And yes, it's all the same three chords. Well, I mean, that that's at least one chord more than punk. <laughs> there, you, there you go. The blues is high art. Yeah. So come on, let's have some more love for this mariachi stuff. Well, so do you fancy yourself as a mariachi player? You fancy yourself in the... Oh, goodness me, yes. There's a, there's a, a place in Mexico City called Plaza Garibaldi, right? which kind of loosely translates as Garibaldi Square, I suppose. I thought it was named after a biscuit. <laughs> I didn't say that it wasn't. I, I have no desire to, uh, to discredit that theory. If you might see, if you want mariachi band, you will just go there at night hmm. and there will be 50 to 100 bands all playing simultaneously. Whoa. And you'll just take a tour around and you'll you'll negotiate some terms with whoever's there. Fabulous. And then they'll jump in your car and go to your party. Excellent. Which is the life for me. That is very cool. I think that's what it's all about. Mike, have you earned your tea break this month? Oh, I've so earned my tea break this month. Have you now? By mixing the uh, New Year's music for the Burj Khalifa New Year's celebrations. <laughs> Which is such a random commission. Let's just restate that one more time. What what exactly was this project, Mike? Well, you know they have this big fireworks display at the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. A, a tasteful little affair, right? Yeah. On the tallest building in the world. And they project like images on the side of it and there are fireworks and fountains and laser shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's all underscored by music. It's about eight minutes of music. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was commissioned to do it this year decided that he wanted a bit of help in that whole kind of project because it was going to be so quick just with the mixing side of it. Yeah. So he ended up then sending me all his stems and I mixed stems for him and then sent them back to him just right in the run-up to to New Year. It was kind of nail-biting thing. (laughs) You see, this is the gods deliberately 
trying to make me look like an idiot the whole time. <laughs> in the very last episode, I said that one of those videos we looked at is going to have more YouTube views than anything I will ever do. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, the, the next episode, I have to report like five million views or something, or, or that this thing has been broadcast to billions of people. It's like... Absolutely. It's, it's the best possible way to facepalm myself, but it's still like, there's someone out there who's deliberately trying to make me look like a fool. I don't need your help. I was going to say, I'm so charmed by the idea that, that you need divine assistance in being made to look like a fool. No, not even human, not even man-made aid. No, no, no. For me to look like this much of a fool, God's involved. Like yeah, some yeah, sort of yeah. spiritual power. Well, congratulations. I am very much looking forward to jumping on YouTube yeah. and um, and seeing this display of understatement and taste. Of course, brilliantly, a lot of the videos... You can't hear the music because the fireworks are so loud. Right. So. I mean, it's also planned out. I wonder if the composer gets a percussion score of when the huge booms are going to be so they can try and work their music around it. I'd love to see that notation, wouldn't you? Yeah. I, I, had, a, I had an extremely smug composition professor in university. Is there any other type? <laughs> <laughs> not in my personal experience. Love you, Nick. But no, not in my personal experience. And he was he was talking about the joys of transcription and said that he was in New Orleans a few years ago for New Year. Yeah. And they had just the most magnificent firework display. And I was enjoying it so much, I sat down and transcribed it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so... <laughs> I'll inquire as to what it looks like. Maybe some kind of graphic score. Oh, I don't know. I mean, probably at this point... I mean, you can get away with anything on a graphic score, can't you? You could just gob on it and call it a graphic score. And you're... When I did A-level, graphic scoring was an option, and I've never seen marks given away quite so cheaply. <laughs> you know, yeah, big red line, the music, and I'm going to make it do some wiggles... A couple of screenshots of unrelated Cubase <laughs> material. It's all a confidence trick. You've just got to act like you think it means something and then <laughs> you can get away with it. It's like, uh, forgive me if this is too niche now, when, when I was doing uh, performance exams, within my class there were very classically minded musicians yeah. who, who would come in and do these incredible sonatas and preludes and yeah. written in thousand-year-old ink on parchment. And then people who would come in with uh, a guitar and a couple of pedals and make ambient (laughs) wishy-washy. And because our teachers lay very much in the classical realm, ambient wishy-washy always got perfect marks. Because how do you do that wrong? I mean... (laughs) You're not fussed about parallel fifths in your ambient wishy-washy, are you? Not so much, not so much. It's all all colour of... It's all flavour, it's all texture. Yeah. Oh, we've had follow-up from last episode as well. Have we now? Um, You know we talked about the Phonolog podcast. Yes, indeed. And how they were saying lovely things about us. Friends of the podcast. Well, Matthias Fromm, from the Phonolog podcast, has become a patron. Has he actually? (laughs) Yeah, what a lovely guy. Thank you so much. Oh, I was so touched. Anyway, so hello, Matthias. Welcome to the fold. Welcome to the burgeoning... You've managed to get in on the ground floor. Oh, and you know what? I haven't checked to see whether he's voted in the Iron Audi grudge match. Because, you know, that could swing it either way. We're going to take a moment, listeners, because this is important. (laughs) (laughs) Unlike literally everything else we do here, this matters. Okay, let me just, uh, let's have a look. Um, Oh, crumbs. 
Perhaps you're wondering, did they cut out some bits of casual conversation here? For the record, we've been in total silence, bated breath, anticipatory, <laughs> tense silence. Oh! Oh! No! Oh! No! Oh! <laughs> Eat yes. my shorts, Mr. Witten. Oh! oh haven't you guys heard long? <laughs> two it's... nil, two oh. nil, two oh, nil. right. <laughs> Right. Oh, he's my friend. Oh, mm-hmm. I knew I could rely on him. Oh, come on! Come on, just for the piano sound, you ought to give it. You ought to give it a vote. He was also listening very carefully to what you were saying, and apparently the uh, the phrase "subtle processing" isn't really translatable into German. <laughs> so you're, you're stuffed. That's my favourite linguistic fact. He said the closest he felt you could get was "zurückhaltende Bearbeitung." Which he felt sounded a bit clumsy by comparison. It doesn't quite roll <laughs> off the tongue, my tongue at least, as um, as easily. I will, I will go with that. So basically, don't try and wing it that way in German. You're going to have to come up with a different tactic. No, okay, yeah. I'm sure, have you heard the original version translates fine, though? Oh, completely. I think that that is a true universal. I reckon. So it's time for our regular news shakedown and the wheelie bin of press releases is overflowing <laughs> as always with some of my favourite things from the last few months. Oh, wonderful. Um, now, everyone knows that tuning in productions is important. I mean, I so often encounter tuning problems in Project Studio productions. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't have as much live experience as you do. do. Do you find that tuning is a problem live as well? Tuning is so much less of a problem live. Oh, right. That's cool. Now, I mean... Tuning is worse when live. It, it, it's <laughs> okay, right. considerably, measurably worse, especially on my instruments, which are very temperamental. Or I'm bad at tuning them, but, you know, <laughs> why would I own that? Um, would you like tuning up? What, the, the half an hour I spend before every gig while all my bandmates are having beers and chatting and I'm bent over my instruments. Would you rather it was done for you? You know, Mike, I think I would. Well, let me answer your prayers. Because there has now been released the new Rody Bass Automatic Tuner. Well, hello. Yeah, I know. I can see. A little glint in your eye. Listeners, I've just put my glasses down to the very end of my nose and lowered my <laughs> coffee cup. It's about the size of a packet of cigarettes, and it's got included in it a kind of a motorised crank okay. that you put over the machine head, just play each string in turn, and it will tune it. Oh, my word. And this will work for pretty much any acoustic string instrument. That's incredible. You know, anything from, like, guitars, basses, mandolin, banjo, hell, even ukulele. Can you imagine it? <laughs> <laughs> Although I was wondering whether there was a no ukulele cost option available. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would pay more if I could tell people <laughs> it won't work on ukulele. Besides, isn't ukulele supposed to be out of tune to sound I, authentic? <laughs> I find it hard to imagine a situation which both includes a ukulele and someone concerned enough about tuning to have one of these fancy gizmos. It's chocolate and cheese. It, it doesn't quite make sense to me. But this, this thing is tremendously versatile. I mean, it's got a pitch range of fundamentals from like 28 hertz to 880 hertz. 28 hertz? It hurts. It'll, it'll do like six string basses and stuff. I mean, I've not actually had my hands on one myself, but the SOS review, and I, I checked out some online reviews as well, some video reviews, where they showed it in action. It's not faster than a human who's really concentrating on it. Right. But it's pretty much as accurate, and it is almost as fast. It takes about 30 seconds to tune a guitar. Oh, really? Furthermore, because it picks up the pitch, not 
acoustically, but via the vibration through the tuning peg, is tremendously robust in terms of working in noisy environments. In live settings. You can get so loud that it won't work, but it's really difficult to do that. That's incredible. So you could do it off the side of the stage, for example. A guitar tech could tune guitars like that. I was going to say mid-set tuning. I have nothing funny to say about this. It just sounds brilliant. It's got an app as well, although it can run without the app, crucially. Mm -hmm. But it has an app that allows you to kind of pre-program various kind of uh, presets and stuff in it for like non-standard tunings, different instruments, different pitches. It can be set so that it only tunes upwards to the pitch. Oh, interesting. You know how on some instruments, you don't want to tune down to the correct pitch, you want to tune up to it and then it's more stable? You can set it to do that. It's slightly slower, but it'll do it. It's got like an LED built into it. So if it's dark and you point it at the machine head, you can see because the LED's pointing down at the peg. It includes like a string winding function, so if you're changing strings, you can speed up the crank. Oh my word! Isn't it brilliant? I just love the idea of it. I'm a big believer, Mike, that tuning by ear is a really important part of playing an instrument, and that one ought to. But no one bothers. <laughs> <laughs> They're just kind of go, ah, oh, that'll do. There we go. What? Do you want to guess the price? Oh, Mike, I feel like you're going to dash my dreams against the rock here. I'm already skipping through fields of daisies with this piece of kit and you're going to snatch it away from me. Um, 700 euros. 149 pounds. Oh! (laughs) (laughs) It's basically kind of like having your own roadie, isn't it? Well, really, exactly. Here's my issue, Mike. We are known, if not renowned, for our irreverent, sometimes snarky take on gear of the day. And I feel like this piece of kit is not meeting us halfway. There's just nothing we can do. Well, no, it is because more than our snarky take on technology, fundamentally, we're lazy. (laughs) 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 And I feel that we have to pander to our core laziness first. This is why you are the sensei. But to get a little bit of snarkiness in, because you're right, people might think they're listening to the wrong podcast. (laughs) Given that, this is a gizmo that to some extent, is replacing a job that otherwise would be done by a roadie. Yes. What other jobs do you think would be worth replacing with robots (laughs) that the roadie might do? I mean, I thought like an automatic Rizzler dispenser or something you can press a button and it it automatically spouts verbal abuse. Just how else do I feel bad about my timing and my musicianship and uh, the quality the kit was in and the cases it's in? (laughs) Other jobs that we can mechanically replace. Could you like a remote control road case or something that just wheels itself off the bus and opens up? <laughs> just drive it around the stage. Actually, it reminds me of one product that they have actually done. Have you heard of Gaftex Gaff Gun? I haven't, but I already suspect I know what it does and I already want one. I mean, it sounds a bit to me like a weapon designed to like eliminate Boris Johnson before he opens his mouth, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> The Gaff Tech Gaff Gun. <laughs> Second Brexit reference of the episode. Dead ringers eat your heart out. Basically, it's a gaffer tape dispenser that looks a little bit like, you know, one of those rolling carpet brushes that has a handle on it. You roll it long. Oh, yeah. The gaffer tape roll is built into it. And it collects together a bundle of cables and as it goes, tapes them down. No. So you can just whiz it along the floor and it neatly tapes the cables all under a single strip of gaffer along the stage. Now, wait though, wait. I feel like I've heard about this one. Speaking as someone who's tried to stretch gaffer in a straight line over cables before and uh, has longed for death, (laughs) this sounds like the perfect tonic. But doesn't it only work with its own particular brand of gaffer tape which doesn't stick very well? It's like the printer cartridge business model, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some sort of exorbitant (laughs) monopoly. And also, the thing I think 
think is that coming from a studio perspective, it would always be overkill. Completely. It's like for studio stuff, I, I just put that little H-shaped bit of gaffer over every few feet or whatever, and that'll do fine. Yeah. And also, when you have a bunch of cables that are stuck down with a single thing of gaffer like that, mm. getting the gaffer up without it wrapping around the cables and just making an absolute <laughs> mess. Making it a nightmare. I've, I've always felt it's like more hassle than it's worth. What is your answer then for when you've got the mixing desk in the middle of a big hall and you've got to get some manner of wires between the stage and them? Is it a matter of just putting a little yellow sign next to it saying, please don't stand on this? Actually, the best thing I've ever found is a kind of a rubber conduit that has a hole through the middle of it and and underneath it has a kind of a split so you can just put the cables in. Then you lay that on the floor. It doesn't stick anything. It's, it actually protects the cables, which gaffer doesn't. You know, if someone comes along with a high heel and steps on your cable, it'll be screwed. Even through the gaffer. Whereas with this thing, it actually cushions it. Okay. On those occasions when I actually feel, oh, right, I need to run a whole bunch of cables like across a doorway or something, then I'll sometimes bring that with me and put those in, in that. Mm-mm. Or use a rug. That's the other thing. Yeah, a rug does sound a lot easier than trying to stick gaffer down because then eventually, you know, the gaffer will stick to itself. You know what? I've realised it. There is something that I don't think any robot could ever replace for me, for roadies. And this is, you know, for all that, there, there is no group of people I am more generally intimidated by. <laughs> but the stories, Mike. Oh, God, yeah. I swear every roadie alive today has done at least three tours with Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> um, you took the name right out of my mouth there. <laughs> It's like, the king of roadie stories is always Ozzy Osbourne, something to do with it, isn't it? It's either that or Freddie Mercury. Completely. And why has it always got something to do with dwarves as well? (laughs) It's, yeah, some sort of tale of high debauchery that these people are witness to. They bear witness. You almost wonder whether you could just have them there as an after-gig raconteur rather than having to have them to have anything to do with the music. Maybe that's what it'll transition into. I think that's absolutely the way I would go for it. Take them off that boring guitar work and just have them as sort of oracles. They can focus on what the real value that they bring to the tour. There is just a compulsory time after every gig where we gather round a space heater ah. or you know the, the the warm engine of the tour van and <laughs> Jerry tells us about that one time he had to procure seven pygmy elephants for Chuck Berry and and we can <laughs> we can all get down on that story. I think it's the way forward. Oh yeah, yeah. I think the union's behind you there. <laughs> Which brings us seamlessly to our facepalm of the month. Oh, it's like coming home. Oh, it is, isn't it? It's like coming home, realising you've left the gas on <laughs> and that the washing machine has overflowed <laughs> and that the, I don't know, the dog's eating the cat. Yes. I was thinking about what to go for this month because, as, as we both know, there's an awful lot to choose from. It's an embarrassment of riches. It really, really is. A, sm- a richness of embarrassment, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's the podcast. That's the podcast. We can wrap it there. (laughs) Sorry. I I, I can't really follow that. One time I was doing a TV promotional thing with a band on a tour in in, in the States. All right. And um, we handed in our instruments where we went to go do an interview Mm -hmm. and they set them up for us. Oh, wow. Which is very kind so that we just come in and, and, and play. Um, which was extremely kind, and and I was wearing a shirt and everything, Mike, <laughs> with with a collar and buttons. Blimey! And these were in my younger, fancier days. I'm amazed the security guys didn't reject you for not resembling your passport <laughs> photograph. <laughs> 
My passport photo looks like an angry, tired motorcyclist. It's Thank you, it's, Lucky Stars. It doesn't look like mine, which makes me look like Myra Hindley. <laughs> so there we are. There we are. We're, we're, we're doing the interview and we come out to stage with a... Cameras are all are all set and ready. Oh, lovely! Yeah. Now the thing is, my I only had a backpack with me, a small backpack, because my, my carry on was my dulcimer, and and this was never quite enough space for me. So I had taken to a, a clever solution, which I actually still use to this day. All right. Which is to use that kind of tiny amount of extra space in my dulcimer case, and shove in all my boxes. <laughs> 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 because you know they they, they they were the smaller items of clothing so you could yeah. really fit them in any any crack or that thought process it feels well worn although i've never taken it a sensible decision so we get onto stage with about a minute to go until until we're live <laughs> and right there is my instrument next to it <laughs> to my internal embarrassment, a pile of neatly folded boxes. No! Which becomes worse when I tell you that I hadn't <laughs> folded them when I put them into the game. <laughs> they laundered them. So they had. Oh no! Some poor b- And to this day, I don't know if this was done meekly or with deep knowledge of how upsetting it would be for me. I assume the latter, having met technicians before. Uh, So this was was touring underwear, Mike. So this was not your black, white and grey. These were flamboyant boxes. And I'm stuck with a problem. I don't know where I can hide these things in the next 60 seconds. What I go for in the end... Washing line? <laughs> Actually, here's the question. What would you do, Mike? Do you chuck them at the cameraman and say, pardon me, would you hold my underwear for a moment? You would be tempted to kind of put a pot plant over them, wouldn't you? Oh, I mean, you could know, pop them behind a monitor, but there's going to be cameras roving around while you play, so there's a very good chance that one of them will just spot this. I mean, honestly, I think in the heat of the moment, I would probably have just picked them up in a pile and just thrown them into the wings or something. <laughs> I mean, the other thing would be just to, like, own it. And in that 60 seconds, grab the whole pile and just fling them out to the audience. Just warm them up. <laughs> be like, yeah, this is the thing we do. Or just go around to the bandmates. Hats, gentlemen. Hats, gentlemen. <laughs> Gosh, I, had I only had you there, Mike, my name would be household across the world by this time. After all, if you're going to get underwear thrown at you, it's only considerate to the audience to give them the underwear that they can throw at you. <laughs> To to prepare them. It makes me wonder whether Tom Jones does something similar, frankly. I'm sure those are all his personal pairs. He preloads the audience. And they they started out as what he thought were, were thoughtful gifts. But there were people who rejected them, who did not want them, and these were the people tossing them back on the stage, saying, no, thank you. Yeah. Wrong size. This is not my style. <laughs> Doesn't go with my skin tone. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, what a creepy man he is. Oh, God, so what did you do? I... <laughs> Do I want to know? I was going to say, I'm not entirely sure you do. I took off my shoes. I took off my shoes and decided that I was going to play this gig barefoot. And then I shoved the box into the shoes. Because I thought I could have a pair of shoes extra instrument. That's okay. And and I just crammed the boxes in. Which must have been heartbreaking if the technician who had folded them so neatly was happened to still be watching. Or maybe he thought it was all part of the, the act and the, the dramatic point in the set, you'd whisk them out of your shoes. <laughs> God, he must have been disappointed by that set when it came Or maybe in. he was mortified. He'd go, oh God, if I'd known, I'd have polished his shoes too. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's the oh. story of how my underwear was nearly seen on national television. So, I mean, what is the takeaway? What's the moral of the story? I mean, uh, do you feel you've learned from this experience? The moral of the story is maybe not to give a bag of your underwear to a stranger whose job it is to set up a television appearance for you. With hindsight, you had limited space and you carry on. What have you? What would you have put in there? Could it have been worse? I mean, if you put your wash facilities in there, would there have been like a, a, a row of like your shampoo and conditioner and stuff? Ah, oh, for them to see. Your Dio. Even just kind of on the dulcimer, like a dressing table. There'd be the toothbrush laid out. There'd be, be everything ready. What would you like to embarrassingly be discovered with? It would have to be some sort of very deep novel, I expect. Some, you know, war and peace, serialized. A brief history of time. There you go, there you go. Something like that. And I could I could prop it up in front of the instrument and then say, oh no. Oh dear. Oh, how embarrassing. What what a thing to have happened. <laughs> or just, you know, some ropes and leather straps and that yeah. sort of thing. That, Do you think there's anything you could have put in there beyond like sex toys or something that they wouldn't have put on stage? <laughs> I mean, they probably would have done that too. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think... In Europe, I'm sure they wouldn't have batted an eyelid, but... <laughs> As you know, I'm, I'm a good Christian boy. Is another one of these stories coming? This <laughs> <laughs> no, is a briefing. I just saw that look on your face of, oh, that reminds me of a... <laughs> no, I just... On a day when all I wanted was something to eat. <laughs> I, nah, behave. <laughs> all I wanted... Was <laughs> something to eat. I walked, I managed to walk into a sex shop because in Berlin, they look like supermarkets. Oh, right. Now, I've spent a lot of my childhood in Cambridge, a good, respectful town yeah. where we didn't have any sex shops. We had one adult store. Right. And the advertising for the adult store was blacked out windows. Totally. And, and no signs, no name on the shop or anything. It was just understood. Heaven for fend. But no, this one was, it was plate glass window. It was all bright. It had a cheerful name across the door and it just looked like a supermarket. It looked, it looked like somewhere that I could, you know, just go and buy sausages. <laughs> Which kind of it was. <laughs> <laughs> Now, as anyone who has listened to the podcast will know, it is our goal in life to demystify the problems of our listeners and to generally help them in any way we can. Mm -hmm. And this month, we're going to be answering a question from dedicated tea breaker Toby Trent. These days, says Toby, very few artists seem to use key changes anymore. Other than the old half-assed, here we go up a semitone for the final chorus kind of thing. Uh, so, can you inspire us, John and Mike, by revealing your favourite key changes in mainstream songs? Interesting. An interesting challenge. I mean, I do have a certain amount of an allergic reaction against the, 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 the old semitone up thing. Do you get that as well? For the most part, yes. But, but I mean, my favourite, which I'm going to get out of the way first, is Beyonce's Love on Top. Okay. Because what that one does is it goes up a semitone for the final chorus. Yeah, yeah. And then it goes up another semitone for an extra bonus final chorus. Oh, right. And then it goes up again. And she just keeps going up and up. Oh, wow. And every time she's ornamenting like higher within the key and it's circus it's acrobatics oh well i mean at least if you're gonna do it like wear it proud there you go the other one i think of with that in with that in mind is um peggy lee's fever which has a couple of those step up changes in it back in the 60s and of course we mustn't forget that classic of step up key change pink fong's baby shark <laughs> 
Does that keep James? Speaking of which, speaking of which, I have to take an aside here because... Please do, sidebar. Reader's Journal Sound Magazine will soon be treated to my mixed review critique of Baby Shark. Are you for real? <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> because actually, when I started listening to it and thinking of it, if you take out of the question that it's a kid's song and it's ridiculous, whatever, and you just listen to it from the perspective of production, mm-hmm. it is actually quite well produced. <laughs> It's like no two bits of vocal production are the same. Every the, the arrangement ratchets up in the right way. They have a, like a drop chorus thing. They've got a tempo change in it. They do lots of things that you should kind of do in a pop production. Yeah. But it's all for this like cheesy kids song. And I came away actually remarkably impressed with the production skills of it, despite the fact that it's this horrendous earworm type of song. I cannot wait to read that. I cannot wait to have that off of my screen. Stay tuned for Baby Shark. It's going to be out soon, I think. All right. Well, we'll, we'll have a link on the Twitter and the Facebook as and when. Anyway, that aside, I do have a favourite um, semitone up key change as well. Oh yeah, what's that? In honour of the occasion, I have fired up my MIDI keyboard. Exciting. It is ABBA's Money, Money, Money. Okay. The final chorus goes up a semitone. But the reason I like this one more than any other one is that it really does make sense harmonically. And they, they actually prepare it in a really clever way. You know, the introduction, this is why I wanted a keyboard here to play it. <laughs> the introduction does this, basically. <laughs> Now the second chord there, it starts on A minor, the second chord is F7. That has an E flat in A minor, which is unusual. Mm. And when they do the modulation, rather than going from here and and, and doing that um, resolution, they go... They resolve that as if the F7 is a dominant seventh, and that's how they get to the new key. It's brilliant, brilliant songwriting to me. And it's the only one of those step-up key changes that I really love. So wait a minute, wait a minute. They take that F7, they take like a dominant six chord in a natural minor. Exactly. And then they use that as a dominant to get into into C? Where do they wind up? Sorry, into B flat. It's set up right from the start of the song. Mm. And you don't kind of realise. And so that key change makes so much more sense. It's like, ah, of course you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So yeah, I, I really like that one. Uh, a brief warning for our listeners: I'm going to talk about mariachi again. It's okay because <laughs> you can never have too much. In one of the two types of mariachi songs, the minor mariachi song, hmm. there's always a moment where you're in your tonic minor, and then you do a tonic dominant to get you to the four chord, and it's that same thing. It's just it pulls you up in the most delicious. Yeah heart-rending way and then you kind of modulate to the subdominant. I suppose I should have my own keyboard here I'll do, do my own little musical demonstration <laughs> but it's delicious I'll raise you a keyboard and, and give you a double manual organ <laughs> oh, oh I think they sell those in Berlin yeah so if I was going to take you as far away from that as possible this well-prepared, deeply satisfying one. There's a song called Love Is To Die by Warpaint. Okay. They've got a great key change. The verse is in G major. Yeah. And then the chorus is in C-sharp minor, a tritone away. Whoa, that's good going. So theoretically, the, the trickiest modulation to justify. So how do they justify it? Well, in layman's terms... They literally don't. <laughs> there is no attempt made to modulate. They just start singing and playing in C-sharp minor. That's great. That's what I call the pure drama key change. <laughs> it is. It doesn't attempt to prepare it or do anything. It just goes, 
Here you go. And it's so dramatic because, you know, it being a tritone means all the notes are changed and it's this fresh, yep. you know, your head snaps around and, and, and you've got a brand new song. Then at the end of the chorus, they just go back to G <laughs> and they, they don't ask for permission. <laughs> they just sort of, they just do it. I've got another example of that drama key change thing that you'll, I can't believe you won't know. Oh, yeah. Which is uh, in the army now. Really? There's the bit where he goes, hand grenades flying over your head and it's all in D, D minor. And then it just shifts wholesale up a tone and then repeats the line missiles flying over your head instead interesting but it is a great bit of drama yeah, yeah. that is really used to illustrate the, the kind of upscaling of the words from hand grenades to missiles so I mean whatever you think of status quo that's one of the great key changes <laughs> okay speaking of drama as this podcast's ambassador of musical theatre oh I'm glad we're going in this territory because I've got some too go on have you I mean well I struggled if I'm honest with you because I'm looking really for, yeah well maybe you just don't have such cheesy tastes <laughs> as me but no, I know you don't have such cheesy days as me. <laughs> but I'm, what I'm looking for, I say to myself, okay, so we're looking for non-lazy key changes. And so I go to the last five years, universe acknowledged good musicals. I, you know, there's Book of Mormon, there's there's Hamilton. Yeah. Hamilton does nothing but the step-up key change. He does it in four different songs. Oh, no. And I couldn't find a more complex, more interesting thing. He does it in Farmer Refuted. He does it in um, Say No to This. He does it in the one where they get married and they're happy about it. Same with Book of Mormon, I believe, has just one up. Uh, you and Me yeah. has one up. I think Greatest Showman has one too. Uh, very possibly. I couldn't stand that film. <laughs> no, neither could I. So I'm glad we can agree on something music theatre related. Okay, I was worried we might come to blows there. I mean, not least because Rewrite the Stars mm. uses that super cheesy Tonight trick. What's the Tonight trick? The Tonight trick is at the end of your chorus, resolving to the tonic note and the tonic chord with a slightly syncopated use of the word tonight. Mm. So uh, that Ed Sheeran one. Thou look perfect tonight. <laughs> and the less related the word tonight is to the actual lyrics or scan scheme or whatever, the better. And that, that Ed Sheeran one is really poor, but it's in Greatest Showman, almost exactly the same. Rewrite the stars. da da to our tonight. And the tonight has no relation to any other lyrics. It's just a way of extending the phrase because they were too lazy to write anything else. To, to write a word that could actually get you there. And there's a long history. It's called the tonight trick, but those are the two most shocking examples have just been recent, that Ed Sheeran and the, and the Rewrite the Stars. You know what? I'm, now I'm thinking about um... I mean, there are some good ones. There's like, I mean, I say good, but there are ones that are actually properly within the song structure, like um, Lady in Red has one. Oh my gosh. And The Way You Look Tonight, that one has one. And Soul Sister by Train, when, when Train did their big comeback okay. over 10 years ago. I don't, don't want to miss a single thing you do tonight. Now, now that you've said it, I can't stop hearing it. <laughs> there you go. It's bloody everywhere. <laughs> It's one of the all-time songwriting cliches. Goodness me. Anyway, so we don't like that musical. Okay, did you find any ones that did modulate then? Well, so I thought to myself, I'm looking for some more sophisticated musical writing. Okay. For musical theatre, go to Sondheim. Okay. Obvious, like Sondheim's got to be the guy. The guy who wrote Sunday in the Park with George and, and Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods and this brilliant stuff. So yeah. then I spent an hour trying to analyse Sondheim. Okay. And then I went and had a stiff drink. <laughs> I'm convinced at this stage... But the man just doesn't use keys in the first place. He can't change keys because he's never met one. Yeah. His chords are more extension than they are chord tones. <laughs> I enjoy listening to it. I enjoy singing it. But it's incomprehensible intellectually. Music that needs no modulation. No, absolutely not. It's a bit like that kind of Wagnerian thing of like just, just free floating harmony that doesn't really relate to any key at all. Yeah, the man couldn't make it through a syllable without <laughs> several implicit key changes. So 
Probably Sondheim is my, my, my answer to our kind listener. Oh, well, in which case, I feel I can, in a rare example of me running to the defence of uh, musicals... Oh, please. There are a couple of absolute corkers in Les Miserables. Really? Yeah. Well, there's the one in Javert's soliloquy where he jumps off into the Seine. Mm. The moment he jumps off, he goes to a dissonant F sharp in the key of F major, mm. and then the whole thing modulates into D major. Ooh. And it, for, for the kind of moving bit where he disappears and it's like his tune in D major. That's a lovely bit of work. And there's also quite a good one in Empty Chairs and Empty Tables. I'm thinking of the tune. There's a bit where he goes, and this pain goes on and on in the verse three. And when he hits on, that note that was originally the fifth in A minor is then reharmonized to be the minor third in C sharp minor. Oof. And then it goes on in C sharp minor. And in fact, both of those modulations are examples of what classical people call a pivot note modulation. Right. Where you hit a note and then use that as the common thing between the old key and the new key rather than having a shared chord. But the great thing about the Javert one, though, is that from a dramatic perspective, the pivot note is a dissonant note in the home key. I was going to say, it's so cheeky to use an F sharp in F major as a pivot. It's one of the classic examples of really using modulation dramatically mm. and it being a real reveal then when it shifts key. You go, wow! Used so in service of the drama. Yeah. And of course, I mean, this is a whole other area. Speaking of drama, that I think you'll get modulations. It's anything related to films. Mm. That's where you're much more likely to get modulations, including, of course, the king of all film song modulations. Oh, yes. In My Heart Will Go On. Oh, I was wondering when we were going to hit Celine. Yes. You know, you get E major to A flat major. Mm. This is a whole different type of modulation as well, because the way he pulls it off is not by a, a pivot tone, but he pulls it off actually by a melodic motion because you get the rising whistle line, mm. da, 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 and the bass note is going down by scale steps or by tone and semitone steps, and you get this contrary motion that then converges on the key change mm -mm. and then into the Celine's... You know, the, the whole tune, yeah. <laughs> We could have been a Dosanic. It's just such a brilliantly conceived key change and, and so not a cliche. It's a real shocker of a key change. Brilliant. I'm a great fan. But it, it does that same job, doesn't it? It does the same kind of we need to go up a gear here. Oh, and it totally does. But it, it just finds it through a tertiary modulation rather than yeah. a... And of course, um, Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do For You, that has one too. What's the key change there? In the middle section, it goes down a whole tone from, I think... D flat, mm. which is the key it's in, down to B or C flat, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And then it's a Mutt Lang production, and Mutt Lang loves his rising fifths or his falling fourths. So it just goes then all the way around a cycle of falling fourths back to the original key. To my shame, I used to be a huge Dream Theatre fan. It's funny, you've not mentioned it on the podcast before. So strange, so strange. <laughs> um, and there, I mean, it's almost cheating, isn't it? Because there's, between every section, there's going to be some sort of jarring, interesting key change. Well, of course, the towering genius of Ingvi Malmsteen as well. <laughs> Upon which we have touched. So I, I give them just a general lifetime achievement award. Mm, mm. Now, there was one that I, I wanted to talk about, which goes a bit away from popular music, but it's just such a stunning song. Electric Counterpoint by Steve Reich. Okay, wow, cool. Or it's not one I've not even heard of. Okay, so it's great. It's for single electric guitar. Okay. It's in his classic minimalist style. So what we're looking at is a three-second loop. Yeah. You know, he just keeps adding and adding and adding stuff to and so for the first three minutes it's literally that it's, it's three seconds yeah for three minutes and he manages to make that interesting which is which is very strange to me right and then again in the war paint style of we're modulating we're not going to tell you why we're not going to tell you how we're just <laughs> yeah. in the mood yeah. he takes this huge thick jungly rich texture he's made over the last three minutes and he moves it all to c minor from E minor to C minor. Whoa. And it's that feeling when you fall and then you, you 
almost hit the ground and you wake up. When you go up one step too many. Exactly. When, when you when you think there's one more step than there is, when you expect orange juice and you get milk, yeah. but in music. And then <laughs> 10 seconds later, he gets bored and he goes back to E minor. Exactly the same texture. Hughes thinks this isn't justified by any melody or anything. He's just taken the score. He's selected all in Sibelius. And he said transpose C sharp minor. Yeah. And then for the rest of the song, about every 10 seconds, he just goes back and forth in between these keys. And it's gorgeous and magnificent. And of course, within a minimalist texture, then a stunt like that has so much more importance. Completely. Isn't there also a key change in, um, or, or one or two, I don't know, it's so long since I've seen it, but in uh, Koyano Scalzi? Yes. Because that be, that's the same deal, that you get this kind of thing going on and then all of a sudden it shifts and you go, whoa. Exactly. You've just been zoning out at that point and going on some kind of trip somewhere and then all of a sudden it's like, bang, you get <laughs> go, go into a different key. A key change when you haven't even had a chord change for the last five minutes of your life is a trip, as you say. All these ones we've mentioned so far, I think they're all minnows <laughs> in the sea compared to mm -hmm. what I think probably is my favourite example of modulation in, in popular music, which is Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart. Now, let's see. I know the song. Now, this is from the songwriter Diane Warren, and I'd say it's probably her finest hour. And it modulates in every section of the song. <laughs> <laughs> the verse is in B minor, the chorus is in D minor, then in the middle section it goes to G sharp minor. Wow. So it's constantly going B minor, D minor, B minor, D minor, then goes to G sharp minor, and then goes back B minor, D minor. And it's not just random key changes. Mm. Basically the, the seed of all those modulations can be found in the opening chord progression of the song, pretty much. Really? And, and the thing is that that chord progression is used pretty much in all of the different sections, in, even when you modulate it. Just in their respective keys. But because of the way it works, the verse manages to modulate into the chorus by extending the falling cycle of fifths that's built into the chord progression down another couple of rungs. Just keeps on going. And then it uses a pivot chord to get into the middle section from the end of the chorus, and then from the middle section it then kind of goes round the kind of cycle back into the verse. It's a masterclass in key changes. That's really gorgeous. It's the only song I can think of that uses a real key change like that to create a kind of a skin rush into the chorus. Now what's a skin rush? It's like when you kind of get goose flesh. Oh right, right. Just to create that emotional rush that you normally get with a reverse symbol or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> there are various ways. But it's, it's something that creates this thing using a modulation. And there are so few songs at all that do that, and none of which are famous other than this one. I mean, there are other songs that switch key for the chorus, but none that I can think of that get the same emotional capital out of it. I mean, um, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover does it, doesn't it? That's true. That's a bit of a drama change, isn't it? But it doesn't create that same emotional impact. The key change is absolutely integral to the, to the Tony Braxton song. I mean, it's a kind of cheesy 90s ballad, but, <laughs> but it's such brilliant songwriting. I mean, Diane Warren gets a very bad rap for writing cheesy stuff, <laughs> but I just have such respect <laughs> for that song. Old Father Time has come back to roost. The cows have come home and we reach our month... What am, what am I saying? What do these words even mean? We reach... I can see you reaching there. I think you were reaching for more than just the topic. <laughs> I wanted to offer our listeners something grand and dignified. Um, we kind of wound up in a, in a pile of cold porridge, but still... It's breakfast themed. Pre <laughs> You're far too kind. <laughs> pressing on, pressing on. It's time for our monthly question of what's your jam, which will herald in this month's Toast Foley. And here it comes. Wow. wow. Okay, I'm going I'm to hazard a guess. Yeah. Well, you've got um, medium density, I want to say slate gravel, mm. trodden on by a size 7 steel toed 
boot in August. Very perceptive. Yeah? Is that roughly what we're looking at? Have you got the, the angle of the light right, though? Oh, uh, well, no. See, it, I was going to say early morning. Ah, right. But it's not, is it? It's middle of the night with a low slanted construction lamp. Easy to mix those up, isn't it? Yeah, it would have been. But, uh, but I was listening hard. Mm. Would, mm. You, would you reveal <laughs> what particular... It was actually a piece of toast. <laughs> I thought it was. I figured that. We had so many bits of folio for spreading things on toast or whatever. It was time to actually have a crunch of toast. And I thought... As a kind of a control test, mm. I should actually have a bite of toast being eaten. Although, I have to say, I think I outdid myself a bit. I was a bit over keen <laughs> in that I deliberately toasted it to try and get it as dry as possible. Mm-hmm. And, oh, honestly, it was like eating a mouthful of sand. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure I'd be able to reply for about a minute and a half there. <laughs> it, was, it was a great old sound, though. <laughs> now that we've got a control, I feel even worse about my aerosol spray attempt, which I... <laughs> I was sure that was going to be like a like a whip quick spread of of margarine over toast, but looking back on it, perhaps not. Well, it's only uphill from here. <laughs> what kind of uphill struggle sort of thing? I don't know. I, I mean, they both have negative connotations, don't they? And and so does flatlining. Yeah, really. There, there's there's no such thing as a good angle, is there? It's plain sailing from here. There we go. I'll, I'll move to nautical analogies. Anyway, my jam this month. I'm going to keep flying my musical theatre colours. Yeah. And do an original cast soundtrack of a musical called How to Win Against History. Okay. Now, this is a musical that tells the story of the fifth marquee of Anglesey. As you do. It was born in the late 1800s. And if you're anything like me, you're starting to nod off now as I talk about his <laughs> huge land holdings. Well, I mean, it's not much worse than Hamilton, surely. <laughs> That's one for the poster. Not much worse than Hamilton. Yeah. This is one of my favourite musicals of all time. This man was was an absolute nutter <laughs> who he, he modified his car to um so rather than exhaust fumes, spray French perfume everywhere it went. Oh fabulous. He had a sword made for himself, which was one gigantic crystal. <laughs> Um, he wore nothing but the fanciest dresses. He bankrupted <laughs> his family's significant estate uh, by building huge theatres. Wow. He sounds a lot like King Ludwig of Bavaria, doesn't he? You know, I think they may have been pen pals, if nothing else. He seems to fit right into that, that motley crew. They, they were mutual inspirations. There is no real evidence that he ever had romantic feelings for anyone other than himself. <laughs> Always a good sign. He wanted to be an actor, so he employed various companies and directors to put on shows with him in the starring role. <laughs> and even when he was doing that, that wasn't quite enough. He would come on, like, during the interval and do, like, he would do his butterfly dance. Right. It's kind of an interval warm-up act. I guess so. Now, the, the burning of the libraries of Alexandria are a tragedy. The loss of the Mayan texts, which could tell us so much about modern astrology, are a tragedy. What upsets me more than any of these is that we have no idea what the butterfly dance looked like. No one thought to write it down. No, surely there must be a few eyewitness accounts. Or is it just, well, I'm completely speechless. <laughs> there was a lot of that. Really, if you want some toffee-nosed unhappiness, read up some of the reviews of his plays <laughs> and his obituary, my goodness. Never in my whole career. I've never experienced anything quite disgraceful. <laughs> so, Welsh theatre maker Cyril Davies has made a musical about this man. Oh, wow. Cyril is amazing, as are his cast. It's a three-hander with a piano. Oh, right. It was the talk of Edinburgh Fringe, big old theatre festival for many years. Yeah. Um, won all the awards that that it cared to, then transferred down to London, mm-hmm, mm. to the Young Vic, very prestigious theatre, and was panned. Oh, no! Was 
absolutely hung out to dry, unforgivably, by snobby London critics who didn't realise what a good thing they had. Wow. You sent me a couple of tracks in advance of this segment, so I had some kind of more idea because I didn't know it. But I could see maybe the content of some of the lyrics, they might have been a bit too close to the bone with some of the London critics. (laughs) (laughs) I myself was wincing slightly. It's true. It has some less than subtle class commentary. Yeah. Slightly direct. For whatever reason. So I thought I would use our, our international platinum platform here to get them back on track. I think it's a worthy goal. And what years of adulation couldn't do, I I thought I'd do here. Mm. I also wanted to provide a contrast to your incredible prog wonderland (laughs) by actually talking about some music that's any good. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't wouldn't push it that far. (laughs) So this recording, it's, um, God, I think what gets, it's the instrumentation. Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. It's only it's, it's three guys at a piano. But God, what a piano! <laughs> I mean, I think it's a, it's a Yamaha Clavinova stage piano. It's, 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 okay, so the piano. But oh, but Mike, Mike, the the technique, the playing technique, yeah. it is yeah. totally competent. It's fine. Well, I mean, respect. I mean, to get that much range out of a Clavinova, basically. <laughs> but really, I mean, even an acoustic piano, just to carry a drama over that period of time, over the, I mean, some of those songs were quite long, mm. to carry them on an instrument that isn't really as expressive as a grand piano. <laughs> no. Because it goes from the kind of satirical and the amusing through to more kind of pathos. Mm. Oh, God, it's heartbreaking at the end. And the fact that it can bridge that divide is great. It is. So the recording is, by design, it sounds like a scratch recording. This right. is something they recorded off the back of a long tour. Mm. They are not at their freshest, but damn it, they know the material. Yeah. They know the songs. And without an orchestra to distract you, without a chorus line to distract you, without anything but the songs, mm. it's just the composition. And the composition is on point. The text is on point. And like, there's a glorious freeness to it as well, for the ones I heard. Completely. Because there's so few people it's a bit like great chamber music Mm. is that there's so few people involved that each person is much freer to take the direction of the music one way or the other absolutely they're not held back by what the other person's doing and they they can go off and then (laughs) someone else will follow and with large-scale productions you just can't have that kind of freedom you just have to follow the dots on the paper because otherwise otherwise you get chaos yeah no it's completely true they work as an ensemble you can hear that in the music it's free, it's silly. It has a little bit of that quick fire thing as well that you get in um, something like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Right, yes, that, that fast back and forth. Yeah, and then all that's built in with the musical accompaniment and the whole thing and all the like joke yes. stuff. Just technically, it's an impressive achievement to pull off that kind of stuff. There's some top-rate patter songs. Yeah. God, he would kill me. I like Anyone who likes Gilbert and Sullivan, as I do, and this will be a guilty pleasure for another <laughs> time, will find a lot to love in this particular track. <laughs> Uh, so I, I would recommend if you are interested in getting started, there'll be links. But start on Boots and Feathers. Yeah, that is a cracker. Boots and Feathers is a is a hymn to Eton schooling, and brilliantly has a character named Cameron. <laughs> was that like? Yes. <laughs> this was. That's amazingly prescient. If that was written before Cameron was the not end. so much remarkably prescient as remarkably unsubtle. All right, good. This was post David Cameron, and he just wanted to make a point, and not knowing the inside of his head, it seems like that was the shortest line between two. Points. And so he he went ahead and drew it. Oh. But no, incredible story, uh, incredible music, How to Win Against History by Serial Davies. Yeah. I cannot recommend it enough. Fabulous. And as an added advantage, you could probably get away with saying you're a fan of serialism then, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs>
I suppose that is probably the easiest, most pain-free method of getting into serialism. <laughs> Least likely to alienate and upset people. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's to... In- you're a sophisticated man. <laughs> Sorry, go on. What's to enjoy in serialism? What's to enjoy oh, in watching a, a, a composer give up control over what notes they use? Oh, God. God, you can wind me up and watch me go on serialism. I spent a whole <laughs> like term doing the serialism course when I was at uni mm. with people who took it very seriously, and I did my darndest to try and appreciate some of this stuff. Right, and I just think that the whole serialism thing is a busted flush. They're saying that because harmony has advanced so far, it needs to break free of all its restrictions. And actually, I think it's by putting restrictions on yourself that the music makes sense. And by taking those restrictions away, what it leaves me with whenever I hear a piece of serialist music is just a feeling of slight confusion and unease. Mm. It all makes me feel the same. Interesting. And so the goal of trying to expand the range of expression available to composers in that one fact is fundamentally undercut. Right, because it all comes out sounding so bloody samey. Yeah, because it all makes me feel baffled. Mm-mm. And that's it. No, I, mean, I can relate to that feeling, certainly. So, oh no, I, I just have no time for serialism. No time, no truck. The thing that baffles me about it as well is that there are a number of people that I have a great deal of respect for who really get it and really went into it. Hmm. Like one of the most baffling things you can see on YouTube is some videos of Glenn Gould yeah. playing Weber's piano pieces. Because Weber's piano pieces... They are the archetype of what my dad used to call plinky-plonk music. (laughs) Really, it does just sound like someone has randomly sprinkled MIDI notes around. Right. Then you see Glenn Gould doing the whole, like, deep breaths and Mm. wavy hand motions. Leaning into the notes. Maybe he gets it. I don't get it. It's beyond me. Right, it's just not there. Serves no useful purpose whatsoever, (laughs) other than to keep boring people busy and out of the way. So, it provides an extremely vital service, is what you're saying. Yes, um... I mean, it has a social function. (laughs) So, I'm afraid we're almost out of time once again for this month, but there is still that few minutes just to thank our lovely sponsor for this month. Always time to thank the sponsors. Now, you know, John, how virtual instruments, they just keep getting better and better. So true. The virtual orchestras that just sound almost indistinguishable from the real things. They're getting closer every day. Absolutely. It's incredible. But something has been getting lost in this process, and that is the charming amateurishness. (laughs) The quality you get of authenticity when instruments aren't played that well. Or indeed, the kind of the punk credibility when you're slightly out of tune and you can't really play. Uh And this area of the market is very poorly served at the moment. Mm -hmm. But our sponsor this month, Rongorishi Productions, (laughs) have brought out their new virtual instruments, Rongorishi Orchestra and (laughs) Rongorishi Band. And this is specifically for those people who find themselves in a situation where, let's say, they have to do foley of a bad school orchestra. Mm -hmm. Now, you couldn't do that with VSL, could you? That... That's where Rongorishi comes in. Right. You know, you've got um, old strings, you know, poorly maintained (laughs) instruments, really dreadful acoustics, just to make it sound properly authentic. Or, you know, if you just feel that you're trying to get that indie vibe, but you've been using session musicians and they're just too good. They're just too darn good. Then you can just put in that really badly played acoustic guitar Mm -hmm. that can just drag the quality level down to a properly indie level. And it's amazing. Just just one poorly played acoustic guitar can really make an entire track unlistenable. Yeah. It it doesn't take more than that. Yeah. So um, many thanks to Rongorishi Orchestra. Do do check out their instruments. They are 
freshly available. Hughes 97. I'm actually, I, I had a Google. I'm on there now. I'm looking at the, the school orchestra patch. Yes. And it's amazing here that clarinet, you can actually drag where the crack on the reed is. Yeah, it's tremendously sophisticated. You can put, uh, th- there's a stickiness slider <laughs> for the keys. There really is just everything here. That's absolutely stunning. Pick how many hairs the violin bows are missing. Mm-hmm. Which end of the baton the conductor's using. <laughs> no, and, oh, good. I was so glad. There's even a special uh, instrument just for the scraping of chairs backwards and forwards by board students. Rustling of pages. And the rustling of pages. And um, quietly whispering back and forth in between movements. Perfect. Yeah. There's everything yeah. here. And of course, um, we have to thank all our lovely patrons. Thank you and so very much. And would encourage other people to get on board with the Patreon campaign. Every Friday, there's exciting new material coming out. Every single Friday. As usual, well, we've been busy. We've had a, a news item about the Audio Silphio. <laughs> we talk about my first gold record, of course. Of course. Uh, everyone will be pleased to hear that. We're about, about Marvin Sheeran's greatest hit. <laughs> and answering that pressing question... How do I get my song to Rihanna? If you want to get your song to Rihanna, well, no, I'm, I, I can't say more. I can't Tune say in. more. Yeah, become a patron. Absolutely. The, the the top tips, including how we both got our songs to Rihanna. Obviously, yeah. Um, and of course, in general, if you like the podcast, do let people know about where we are. It's www.projectstudio.tbreak.com or our email address. Teabreak at projectstudio.teabreak.com And you can find us on Facebook on... I'm glad I didn't do the worst job. <laughs> no! I was going to give you grief for that website readout, and uh. here we are. <laughs> you know what, Mike? You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. Facebook at facebook.com slash books or Twitter at twitter.com slash tweets. Uh, it almost ground to a halt. I wonder when you were running out of battery. It did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us as we gradually descend into gibbering madness. Fittingly, for this podcast, you shifted down a key just for the final moment. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did. For our final chorus, I thought I would just slow everything down, <laughs> lose the energy. It's classic. So thank you for listening. <laughs> See you next month. Well, and it, it only remains for us to say thank you so much for tuning in, and we look forward to seeing you next time tonight. 